Okay, Boker Tov, good morning everyone. It's great to be back. Hope everyone's having a happy and a healthy and a, a wonderful summer. We have the privilege this uh, week of studying Parshas Matos and Masse, two Parshas. We're finally going to catch up with a double Parsha and complete the uh, amazing Sefer Bamidbar together. We begin with Parshas Matos. If you're following in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash, it's on page 900. And of course, Parshas Matos begins with the laws of the Dharam of taking a vow, of taking an oath, of making a promise. These are very complicated laws. There's only a portion of the actual intricate laws that are recorded in the Torah itself. So much of it is Torah Shabbat described by Chazal as uh, letters that fly in the air, almost uh, difficult to assemble, to understand, and to access. So the Torah begins by Moshe spoke to the Rashem Matos and he told them, this is what God commanded you. Why did he specifically deliver the mitzvahs, the uh, laws of Nadarim to the Rashem Matos? Why did it have to be delivered specifically to the heads of the tribes? It's a good question. Maybe we'll come back to Ishki Dor Neder Lashem. And what was the law he delivered? That if a person takes a vow, the difference between an and a shvua, one is on the chefza, one is on the gavra. One relates to the object, another relates to the person. You can either take a vow, you can make a promise which forbids an object. So you could declare this chair, right now it's an ordinary chair. Right now the chair is mundane, it's nothing. But if I make a promise that I won't benefit from the chair, I give the chair the status of sanctity of a holy sacred object, I forbid, I make prohibited to benefit from the chair. So that's a law, that's a din in the chair, in the chefza. There's also an oath, which is a din in the gavra. If I make a vow, I say, you know what, I gained so much weight this summer, I did nothing but eat over my vacation, I hereby promise I'm never eating potato chips again. It's not on a... I'm not making that promise. I am, I did start my new lifestyle yesterday. But I'm not prepared to take another never to eat potato chips again. So that's not on the particular potato chip. That's on me, on the person. And the Torah employs a very interesting phrase. Because it tells us, So whether it's a neder or a shvua, either way, lo yachel dvaro kechol Lo yachel dvaro. What does that mean, lo yachel dvaro? Don't violate your word. Don't violate your promise. You made a promise, he said you're going to observe, whether it's the way you interact with an object or you transform your expectations of yourself as a subject, as a person. Either way, don't violate. Be true to your word. Just as you spoke, so shall you do. That's the simple understanding of the Pasuk. Look at Rashi, says Rashi here on Pasuk Gimel. What does mean? Not just don't violate your word. You made a promise. You made a pledge. You made a commitment. Be true to your word. Follow through. Do what you say. You said you're going to meet someone, someone at a certain time. Don't be late and keep them waiting. You said you're going to give certain staka. Don't make an empty promise and fail to deliver. You said that you're going to make a commitment to change something in your life. Don't just make it on fire one moment and forget about it the next. Lo yachel dvaro. Follow through. Everything that leaves your lips, every word you say, so shall you do. Barashi takes it a further, a step further, and he says, the word yachel comes from the word chulin. What is the word chulin? What do we say every Saturday night? Lahavda ben kodesh le? Lechol. Havdalah comes in order to help us re-enter the week. 
we transition from the sanctity and the holiness of Shabbos into the mundane week. From Ben Kodesh Lechol. Chol Chulin means profane, mundane, ordinary. Says Rashi, Lo Yachel Dvaro. Don't see your own words as ordinary or mundane. Understand your power of words. Understand the potency, your capacity to create new realities, to change the world. So I brought down in the Sefer as an example. What's an example where our words change reality? Marriage. Stand under a chuppah, and the man says, They're married. If a moment before this woman is intimate with another man, there's no punishment. A moment after he says that sentence, it's death penalty because it's a violation of Eishazish. She's a married woman. What made the change? What made the difference? Of course, it was the Messiris Tabas. He gave her the ring, but he gave her the ring, and it was accompanied with those words, Hareat Mikudeshes Li. We spoke about on Shavuos. We printed in the Kuntras for Shavuos the uh, insight that if you say Harat Mikudeshes, but you leave out the word Li, you're not married. You have to give over yourself. It has to be to me. One word makes the difference. You omit one word under that chuppah, you're not married. But that sentence changes a reality. It changes a reality. A moment ago, the chair was just a chair, and I could use it. But now I've turned the chair into a piece of pork. I turned the chair into basar b'chalov. I turned the chair into something which is forbidden. How did I do it? With what mechanism or instrument, what tool did I do it? You know what the instrument is? The power of speech, says Rashi. Chulin, lo yachel dvaro. Don't turn your words into chulin. Don't let them be so insignificant to you that you use them so freely, so loosely, so insignificantly, so casually, so irresponsibly. Realize that words are kodesh, they're holy. With words we transform, we can impact the world. We create or destroy, we build or we can demolish. With words we can comfort and console or we can aggravate. Words create reality. We think that the physical world is reality. Words are just porchos ba'avir. Words just, they float away. Look at the world we're living in today. I'm not taking a political position on either side, but the whole issue of the rhetoric and the whole issue of, of language and words and words matter. Words matter, they create reality. Policies matter, actions matter, but we're living in a time when we see how much words matter. Words matter. Lo yachel The Salonim Rebbe says, Salonim Rebbe asks in Siva Shalom, he points out Rashi's, lo And he says, why does it say, it should have said, lo ya'avor al dvaro, not lo yachel dvaro, don't violate your word. Lo ya'avor, don't violate what you said. You made a promise, you made a pledge, fulfill it. You promised a certain behavior, do it. Should say lo ya'avor, why lo yachel? And what does it mean that to not make it chulen? And what is the end of the passage? Everything that comes out of your mouth, so shall you do. Isn't that obvious? You just made a promise. And the Torah said, don't violate your promise. So isn't it obvious if you're not violating your promise, it means what are you doing? Fulfilling your promise. That's the opposite of violating your promise. So why the redundancy? Why the extra words? Don't violate your promise. Make sure to fulfill it. Isn't it obvious? Ask the Salaam Rebbe. So he says, etzim in your neder tzarech bir. In fact, you have to ask, how does a neder work to begin with? How can you change reality with words? So he quotes Rabbeinu Yonah. Ki Yehudiya Mekadosh piv nasa piv kechli shares. Rabbeinu Yonah and Avo says that a Jew, a person who uses their words properly, their mouth becomes a holy vessel. 
You have a menorah and a shulchan and a kiyor and a mizbeach. We have holy vessels in the temple. And the vessel in our lives, if we see ourselves as a living mikdash, if we see our bilvavi mishkan evne, if we see ourselves as that living tabernacle, then the holy vessel in our lives is our mouth, or our lips. Just like a vessel in the temple, when you put the ingredients in it, it makes everything in it holy. It gives it a sacred status that can't be violated. So if our mouth is a klisharis, if our mouth is a holy vessel, just like in the Beis HaMikdash, whatever was put into the vessel attained the kedusha of the vessel, so too if our mouth is that vessel, that instrument, the words we express and we articulate with it take on holiness. They take on significance. We create reality. And therefore, we cannot violate it to make it mundane. And it's a long piece, but the Son of Rabbi basically says, understand the end, end of the Pasuk this same way. What does it mean? It means whatever left your mouth, you created something with it. Every word we say, we create a reality. So we have to be so careful, so vigilant. We're living in a time where there's never been a time that we can so efficiently spread our words so widely, so virally, with social media and the internet and text messaging and email, it's so easy to thoughtlessly and mindlessly say something, text something, write something, post something, and it spreads. And once it leaves its imprint in the, in the uh, cyber world, it's leaving an imprint in reality. Everything that Yotsemi Piv, if it leaves your mouth, and our fingertips today are an extension of our mouth, if it leaves our mouth, it's created, it's real, it's out there, it can't be taken back, which is why we have to be so careful and so vigilant. There's no such thing as, what Rashi is saying is, there's no such thing as power of words. The Balatanya was machadesh, something very, very significant. When I first learned it, it had a huge impact on me. According to many other Balai Musar and schools of Machshava, we have three realms of behavior. We have holy, and we have unholy, we have a mitzvah, we have an avera, and we have a third realm called rishus. It means, if I'm occupied with a religious activity, I've done a mitzvah. I've tapped into my neshama. I've accessed the spiritual world. If I do an avera, I do something wrong, I violate something Hashem has said, be careful about, I've tainted my neshama. I've blemished my neshama. I've done something wrong. But according to most, there's a third area that's called rishus. It's neither holy, nor is it unholy. It's the opposite of holy. Profane, wicked, evil. It's neither. It's rishus. It's what we would call in the world of kashras, parav. It's parav. It's not fleshiks. It's not milchiks. There are things that are parav. If I go for a jog, is it a mitzvah? Is it not? It's parav. If I'm reading the newspaper, if I'm having a cup of coffee, if I'm doing whatever, it's parav. That's according to most. He came along the Balatanya and he said, no, that's not how the world is divided. The entire world, for a Jew, our perspective, our attitude to life is... It's either holy or it's unholy. Those are the only two options. If you're going for a jog, are you doing it to be healthy? Are you doing it to blow off steam? Are you doing it to build energy? When you go to the museum or when you read the paper, when you sip the coffee, when you go for the walk with the person, there's no such thing as neutral. There is no parav. There are many people who don't have parav in their kitchen because they have a phobia of parav. How do you make parav and what do you put parav with and where do you wash the parav and how do you store the parav? So the Balatanya, no parav in his kitchen. 
There is no parav. There's no neutral. We have to measure and evaluate every thought, behavior, action, speech through that filter or through that metric of, is this going to advance holiness or is this unholy? There is no neutral, there is no profane. And I think that's what Rashi is saying about our words. There's no just stam blabbering. You don't just stam talk for the sake of talking. Is what we're going to say going to contribute positively? Is it constructive or is it wasted words? Is it chulen? Have I turned something that should be kodesh into chol and into chulen? There is no middle ground. Now, yes, there is such a thing called small talk. Dvarim shamabekach. The Chazal already referenced that concept of Dvarim shamabekach, which is another way of saying small talk. But small talk is also holy. I'm not going to go back to say Fabricius, but the Ksava Kabbalah, once uh, we've shared, offers the interpretation that what were Yaakov and Paro talking about in their very, very short meeting? The Ksava Kabbalah, Rabbi Yaakov Mecklenburg says, Dvarim shamabekach. What's doing? How are you? What do you think of the weather? How old are you? What's the value of Dvarim shamabekach? Shouldn't they have, like, set a machlokas between the Ketzeus and the Nesivas? Shouldn't they have debated the theology, the origins of the universe? What's the value of Dvarim Shemabekach? The answer is Dvarim Shemabekach are the foundation of a relationship. Not every conversation has to move mountains. The foundation of a relationship... See, if I only talk to you because there's an agenda to our conversation, then I'm not really interested in a relationship with you. I'm interested in using you to advance my agenda. I have a question for you, I'm asking you to do something, I'm working with you, I'm related to you. If my conversation with you is only when there's something that I need, then it's not a relationship with you I need, it's I need to use you to advance what I need. But if I'm willing to engage Dvarim Shamabakach, they call and say, you know, some, not me, other people might get a call from their children and say, what do you need? Child says, why do I have to need anything? I'm just calling to say hi. What's doing? How's your day? A little suspicious. Now, come on. Where, when's the ask coming? Yeah, Dvarim Shamabakach. You know, you want the evidence that the relationship is the real, is central, is core. It's not all about needs. It's Dvarim Shamabakach. So yes, there are Dvarim Shamabakach, but those two are Kodesh. They're holy. When you're willing to engage in Dvarim Shamabakach, when you schmooze and make small talk with someone simply because you want the relationship, that's also holy. So the whole first part of our parsha which as you can tell, I can get into a lot more, but we're not going to, is this notion that words are not, first of all, they're not endless. They're not endless. You know, the social media platform of Twitter, which ended up expanding. Originally, it had a very limited amount of, uh, of, of letters you could have, 140 characters, and it ended up expanding because we couldn't actually articulate ourselves so succinctly. But even now, still, it's a very, very small amount. And if you want to post something on that platform, you have to be very thoughtful of how you're going to say it how you could say it most succinctly, how you can spell you, not Y-O-U, but just you. You have to use all kinds of tricks. How? Because words are not endless. We have a limited amount, and therefore, if we understand that, we'd be much more vigilant and careful in exactly how we use them. So that's the opening of the Parsha. That's the opening of the Parsha. The laws of Nadarim are that reminder. Lo yachel dvaro. Everything that leaves your lips, it's creating a reality in the world. It's doing something in the world. It's leaving an imprint and an impression in the world. We, we appreciate this again now more than ever. Now in schools, there are actually classes or a special assembly for young people to learn about how to be responsible cyber citizens. What are they learning about? They're learning about the footprint they're leaving in cyberspace. That later in life when they apply for the job, the first thing someone's gonna do is Google them and look on social media at their previous posts. 
And in the Shaduchim, depending which community of Shaduchim, they may go online and look, and they'll, they'll yay or nay, based on a picture from seventh grade that you posted on the vacation that you weren't thinking about. So young people are, are learning lessons. We are learning how to offer a curriculum in how to be a responsible cyber citizen and how to leave the proper footprint in cyberspace. So we understand today that anything you type or write, it is in the world. You could try to delete it or take it down, it's too late. But what's true in cyberspace is true in space. It's true in spiritual space, metaphysical space. Whatever we say has created a reality. If we could actually see our words as they left our mouth, we'd be so much more careful with them. But they feel invisible and they feel limitless, and therefore we waste them. And that's what this parsha is about. That's why Rabbi Soloveitchik explained we begin Yom Kippur with Kol Nidre, the most bizarre. Any outsider who said, oh, Yom Kippur is your holiest day of the year, everyone's wearing white, and you're coming to the shul, and you're abstaining from fasting because you're angelic and you don't even need physical foods or physical pleasures, and how do you begin that ceremony? How do you begin that solemn day, that 25 hours of your holiest day of the year? What's the first thing that you do? We annul vows. We convene a court, and we recite along, we sing, we chant three times that we'd like to annul all of our vows and oaths. That sounds so spiritual, so moving, so emotional. That's not exactly unasana tokef. So why do we start with that? Rabbi Salavechik said, because Yom Kippur begins by saying, you're about to spend the next 25 hours offering words. You're going to tell God you're sorry and you have regret and remorse and you're making promises and pledges for the future. We begin by reminding ourselves that words matter, that words count, that words create reality. So you just made a bunch of promises the whole previous year. We're going to begin with Hataras Nadarim. We have to annul those words. Why? Just start again. Because the promises you made, they matter. They create a reality. And if you want to undo that reality, you need to say Kol Nidre. You need to do Hataras Nadarim. Words matter. They are the means through which we express ourselves and we build those relationships and we make those connections. And therefore, words matter and they matter a lot. And I'm using up so much of them that I'm already out of time. Okay, there's uh, another insight that I always share at the beginning here of Parshas Matos with Nadarim. The Torah says, Vashem Yislach La. What's the case of Vashem Yislach La? We know that a woman or her husband can annul her vow. So what happens if a woman takes a vow, her father or her husband annulled her vow, her vow but without her knowledge, and then she ended up giving in to her impulse and violated what would have been her vow, but it was annulled. So in other words, she pledges. I ate out all summer, and I'm never looking at chocolate cake ever again. I hereby vow. And the husband learns about her vow, and he says, there's no, I know my wife, and there's no chance she can fulfill this. So he annuls the vow. She doesn't know it. She goes out to lunch with a friend. She's made this promise, this pledge, but she just can't help it. So she orders the chocolate cake. And as she digs in, she thinks that she's violating a nether. Turns out, she, if this came before the heavenly court, she'd get off on a technicality. What would she get off on? There was no vow in place. The husband had annulled it. And yet the Torah says, in the exact circumstance I just described, if her father or her husband annulled the vow, but she didn't know that, and engaged in a behavior which otherwise would have violated it, Hashem has to forgive her. And Rashi is bothered, and to me there's a very, very powerful message here. Rashi is bothered. Why? Why does she need forgiveness or atonement? 
If it goes before the court and she has a half-decent lawyer, he can prove that she's innocent. The vow had been annulled. And Rashi reminds us, because our relationship with Hashem is not before a court. It's not about the legality or the technicality. It's about a relationship. If a person tried to violate the trust of their spouse, but it turned out because of a technicality they didn't really do it, but their intent was, how would that impact the relationship? You wouldn't say, well, but technically I didn't do it. Yeah, but you tried to do it. You went there to do it. You engaged in doing it. For whatever reason, it didn't work out to do it. So don't tell me you're off the hook and all is hunky-dory in our relationship. You intended to, you tried to, you were driven to, you were about to, and there's a technical reason that you didn't. So that passage, those three words, Vashem Yislach La, are the reminder that the relationship with Hashem is not litigants and a judge. It's not subjects and a king. Our relationship with Hashem, at least in its highest form, its aspirational form, is the relationship of a husband and wife. We're in a relationship. It's not just whether we technically did it or not. It's where is our intent? Where is our kavana? Where is our mind? Where is the meaning in the relationship? And that is evidenced through that particular halacha, through that particular law. Okay, the parasha goes on. We're on page 902, after the section of Nadarim. What comes next? It's time for revenge. It's time to get even. Hashem doesn't get angry, He gets even. So Midian, who had taken advantage of us, Midian, who had persecuted us or taken advantage of our vulnerability, Come, Akash Baruch Hu calls for Nekom Nikmaz B'nai Yisrael to take revenge against Midian. Now, this notion we're not going to spend time on now. We've given Shiram in the past the Jewish view of revenge. Do we endorse revenge? Do we condone revenge? Are we against revenge? Is there a difference between Hashem's revenge? We describe Hashem as a vengeful God, and yet we have an explicit verse we are not supposed to take revenge. Is revenge good or is revenge bad? What is revenge? So we're not getting into it now, but I call to your attention that uh, tension in these words, Nekom Nikmas B'nai Yisrael. So Moshe calls on the people and he says, Arm men. He says it's time to form an army. It's time to convene an army. Time to convene an army. This words, Hechaltsu Meitchem, Rav Moshe of Kajnitz, the Kajnitz Rebbe said, How do we form an army? How do we fight a war? What do we need to be willing to do in order to engage in battle, to be triumphant? It's Hechaltsu, how? Meitchem. Shiloti Yelan Shatsava Shum Nagia Machshavi Ishis, Elakoma Tarasum Srikhlios, Rak, Lasais Nikmas Hashem Bemidian. It says, When you're really part of Tzvaos Hashem, I never made it past private in Tzivos yeah. Hashem. I'm still a private, yeah. but I was a member of Tzivos Hashem as a child. You hear that, Alan? I hope I've ascended now from private a little bit. But if you're a real member of Tzivos Hashem, if you're part of the army of God, then it has to be me'itchem. You have to remove and purge any, any personal negiyas. It's not about you. It's not about your ego, yourself. It's about Hashem. You're in the army of Hashem. So the prerequisite, says the Kajnitz Rebbe, what he's saying here in this Pasukah, Moshe is recruiting people to serve in the army of Hashem. And if you're genuinely and authentically in the army of Hashem, then it's Hechatsu. How do you enlist? Me'itchem. Get out of yourself. 
It's not about you, it's not about your ego, it's not about your agenda. You're in the army of Hashem, you're in the greater army. You have to be able to subjugate, you have to be able to suppress your personal interests in order to truly be in the army of Hashem. Rabbi Soloveitchik has a very powerful uh, passage here on the Heichal Tzu and applying it to contemporary times. He says, if you ask me, how do I, a Talmudic Jew, look upon the flag of the state of Israel and does it have any halachic value? I would answer plainly, I do not hold at all the magical attraction of a flag or similar symbolic ceremonies. Judaism negates ritual connected with physical things. Nonetheless, we must not lose sight of the law in the Shulchan Aruch. It says, the Shach quotes in Yerodeya, the effect that one who's been killed by an non-Jew is buried in his clothes so the blood may be seen and avenged. As the Pasuk says, in other words, the clothes of a Jew acquire a certain sanctity when spattered with the blood of a martyr. How much more is this so of the blue and white flag, which has been immersed in the blood of thousands of young Jews defending the country and its population. It is a spark of sanctity that flows from devotion and self-sacrifice. For the Rav, the Israeli flag is a holy, holy symbol. And for the Rav, he prefaces it by saying, I don't believe in symbols and in rituals. But that flag carries with it. If the Shach in Yerodeah says that if a Jew is martyred, if a Jew is murdered, normally we perform a tahara, we remove the clothing, and we put them in the tacharichin that resemble the big day kahuna. But if a Jew is murdered, we don't. We bury them in their bloody clothing because the blood ascends with them and attests, defends on their behalf, advocates on their behalf. And so the Rav extrapolates from that halacha. If that's true from the clothing of a martyred person, how much more so for the flag that carries with it the martyrdom of 2,000 years of exile and of those who've given themselves to found, found and defend the state of Israel. And it carries forward the following story. The Rav was once visited by a student who served in the Israeli Defense Forces who asked the following question. He worked in the tank division and his job was cleaning and maintaining the tanks. Often his uniform would get covered in oil and grime. Did he need to change clothing before reciting the afternoon prayer, saying mincha? Since donning proper attire is a prerequisite for prayer, he emphasized that it would, be po- it would be possible to do so, but it would be very inconvenient and difficult. So this mechanic in the tank division of the army asked, I think the question was uh, posed by Rav Lichtenstein, who asked the Rav, my brother heard it from Rav Lichtenstein, I think is the more accurate version of the story, that one of Rav Lichtenstein's atzals tamidim said to him, I'm in the tank division, I could change, would be inconvenient, would be very difficult, can I daven in my grimy Israeli army uniform? And Rav Lichtenstein, quoting the Rav, said to him, why would you need to change clothing? You're wearing Big Day Kodesh. That uniform, our Big Day Kodesh, that uniform, our holy, our holy, holy clothing. So Heichaltsu Me'itchem, the notion of Heichaltsu, the Chalutzim, to be pioneers, to be recruited, to serve in an army that defends Hashem, that is holy, holy activity. But as the Kajnitzer said, it has to be Me'itchem. We have to get past ourselves. So this is true in the physical army to defend the Jewish people, and the battle that we wage on our own behalf with our Yetzahara, the battle that we wage with our own alter ego, the way to persevere and to triumph is Heichatzu Hau Me'itchem. If we can transcend our own sense of self and realize that life is much bigger than us, there are other people, there's a Ribbon Shalom we serve, when it is Me'itchem, when we transcend ourselves, that's when we can, that's when we can triumph. What happens here? Elef Lamateh, Elef Lamateh. Rav Kook from Rehovot made this uh, medrash on this Pasuk famous, sadly, several summers ago. Bli Ayin Hara, this has been a relatively quiet summer, Bli Ayin Hara, but it seems as almost every summer, Hamas or Hezbollah pick a fight. And so um, Rav Kook from Rehovot promoted the medrash on this Pasuk, Elef Lamateh, Elef Lamateh, the medrash says, for every thousand in the army, there were a thousand who took the name of a soldier and prayed for them. And he distributed names of soldiers that matched you up so that you can be davening not just globally, 
but for a specific soldier, you sort of have adopted and you have them in mind on this Pasuk. They went out to war, they went out to battle, they fought Midian. What happens after they fight Midian? What happens? They go out and they and they bring them back. Moshe gets angry. Moshe rebukes the officers. Moshe on the top of 906. Did you let every female live? And so on. Moshe gives the strict instructions. The Jewish army has always been a moral army that has very strict moral imperatives about moral boundaries, about how to engage. Our view of, war, our view of warfare has a very strong ethic. It's not just open-ended. It's not barbaric. And here Moshe is giving that very strong charge to the Jewish people. They battle, they conquer, and then what happens? The middle of page 906. To the victor go thee spoils. So when we conquered Midian, what did we take? They didn't have flat screen TVs. There were no Teslas in their driveway. What did we conquer? What were the spoils from Midian? What got a Jew excited? You know what we took? We took the KitchenAid, and we took the bread maker, and we took the microwave, we took the skillet, and we took the pots and pans, and we took the silverware, and we took the champagne glasses. That's what was there to take. So what do you do with it now? To the victor go the spoils. We took their kitchen. What do you do with their kitchen? The Midianites did not exactly observe the laws of kashrus. So how do you use them? This is the Torah source for how to kasher. This is the source in the Torah. What do you do when you acquire something? Either you acquire something that needs to be kashered, or you, or more likely your husband, messed up something in the kitchen and it needs to be kashered. So how do you kasher it? Anything that needs to go in fire has to be brought through fire and purified. This is the Torah source for the idea of for the idea of Tvilas Kalim and Hagalas Kalim. I'm not going to elaborate too long on this. This is what we're studying, this incredible new program. Our shul has been privileged to be part of called the Smichas Chaver program. Rav El Yada Goldvecht, my friend Rav El Yada, has created an incredible program, put together a beautiful curriculum. So the first two sections we did so far were Tvilas Kalim and Hechsher Kalim. Starting this Sunday, we continue with Pasakum and then Bishalakum. There's a Bechina, a test, and those who pass will get a certificate. There's a beautiful CM coming up. It's a beautiful program for men that it put together. So each session that we learn begins not just delving into the laws and the minutiae and the details, but the bigger picture. What's the beauty of the mitzvah? What's the deeper reason of the mitzvah? So I'll share with you a few of the reasons for Tevilas Kalim and Hagalas Kalim. Tevilas Kalim, of course, is if you have a new utensil that you acquire from a non-Jew, it has to go to the mikvah before you can use it. What kind of a utensil? So the Pasuk here lists several types of metal. Zahav, Kesav, Nechoshes, Barzel, Bedil, and Ofaris. So glass is not referenced in the Pasuk. Metal has to go to the mikvah mitoraisa biblically, but our rabbis learn that glass has similar property to metal in that it can be melted and reformed and refashioned. I saw glass blowing this summer. It's an incredible thing to see. Since glass has similar property to metal, Chazal concluded midirabonon, rabbinically glass has to go to the mikvah. Both get a bracha. 
People mistake that all the time. They think glass doesn't get a bracha, metal does. If it qualifies as a utensil that should get a bracha, whether it's metal or glass, it has to go to the mikvah, and it gets a bracha. Other items do not. What's considered a clay suudo? What constitutes a, a vessel that's used for a meal? Does a salt shaker have to go? Does a corkscrew have to go? Does pots, pans, do the grates in your oven or your barbecue? That's why we have smichas chaver. That's a whole area of halacha we're not going to get into. How do you tovel your sandwich maker and your hot water urn and electronics is a modern question. What do you do about that? Also, we're not going to get into. But giving you some deeper reason for this mitzvah of, haga- of tefillas kalim. Why? Why did the Torah say if you acquire a kli from a non-Jew, in other words, if a Jew made your kli, if you're in Israel and you buy a kli from a Jew that you know it was not made in China and imported to Israel and through Israel to you, but you know it was made in Israel, Many of your Kiddush cups are made in China. Just because you bought it and overpaid for it in some tourist trap in Israel doesn't mean that it was made by a Jew. So you've got to look at the, find out where it was made. So if it was made by a Jew, it doesn't need to go to the mikvah. But if it was made by a non-Jew, it does. And the question is why. The Yerushalmi makes a comment and says, just like a non-Jew becomes Jewish by going to the mikvah, non-Jewish utensils become Jewish utensils by going to the mikvah. What makes them Jewish utensils? That you didn't pay retail for them? What makes them Jewish utensils? <laughs> What makes them Jewish utensils? So it is the mikvah that converts them. It's the mikvah that transforms them. But the question is, how does the mikvah do that? And why do I have to do that? So the simple understanding of the Yishami is that you're going through the mikvah as a transformational process, like a non-Jew to a Jew. The Emes Yaakov, Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky, has a different perspective. He writes... What is it? This is not about impurity. The Nanju never used it, and the Nanju never contaminated it. So why does it need to be converted? Says Rav Yaakov, not every time you go to the mikvah is it a convert becoming a Jew, a Nanju becoming a Jew. The Kohen Gadol, the high priest on the holiest day of the year, also immersed in the mikvah to take something that was already holy and make it even holier. And says Rav Yaakov, that's the image that we have. Our kli was already holy when you bought it wherever you bought it. By putting it in the mikvah, you are pledging, you are promising, you are trying to transform it into a vehicle, a vessel of even greater holiness. So how do we do that? Through what means do we do that? So the Meiri makes an amazing comment. The Meiri in Avodah Zarah, Dafayin Hei, says, Says the Meiri the following incredible insight. Where is an area of our life, arguably the biggest, if not within the top three, where we actually achieve holiness? It's not in the shul, it's not in the base medrash. It's in how we eat. It's in how we eat. I once saw a beautiful parish. The Mishnah in the Arve Psachim, the 10th paragraph Psachim says, Ein Kiddush ela b'makum se'uda. And there's a whole halachic topic over there. When you make Kiddush, you need to have some mazonos, you maybe need to wash, you need to drink a revius of the grape juice or the wine. But if you made Kiddush, but you didn't eat something with it, it's not Kiddush. Ain't Kiddush ela b'makum se'uda. Kiddush has to be with b'makum se'uda, with a meal. Either some are strict to say you have to even only do it on bread, you have to wash Lechem Mishnah. Others, Mizonas is good enough, which is the Minag Yisrael, that Kiddush is everywhere. That's why everyone, you hear the Kiddush and you grab a cracker, you want some Mizonas. Ain't Kiddush el b'makum So I want some magnificent pshat, homiletically. Ain't Kiddush, ain't Kiddusha el b'makum You know where you find holiness? In how you eat. Did you make a baracha before and after? Is what you're eating kosher? Is it healthy? Do you stop eating when you're full? Are you eating to have energy to serve Hashem? Are we eating like a pig? 
Are we eating hedonistically or are we eating holy in a spiritual way? Ain Kedusha Suda. So the area of our life where we achieve holiness and the attitude that we bring, the mindfulness that we bring, is in the area of eating. So therefore, says the Me'iri, why do I have to bring my kalim to the mikvah? Because the kalim in a Jew's kitchen are different than kalim everywhere else. The kalim everywhere else are about just satisfying my palate, my urge. I, I over the summer, was forced to, when my children were watching a lot of... Uh, cooking competitions, it's in, now they enjoy watching that. So I heard, you know, bring the heat, it's not acidic enough, you got to this, I know all the terminology now. So these cooking competitions, they're just about the food. It's all about the food. Maybe the food as an art, as an aesthetic, I'm not saying that's wrong, but it's all about the food. Those utensils are all about serving the food. When a Jew brings vessels into our kitchen, what we're saying is, I put those vessels in the mikvah because my pots and my pans and my silverware and my cooking things, they're not just about the food. They're not just about my boich. They're about where I'm going to achieve Kedusha. I'm going to become holy because I'm using them to cook meals that I'm going to host guests at. I'm using them to cook meals that I'm going to drop off as chesed for those who need. I'm using them to cook because I want my family to have the energy to serve Hashem. And I want to sit around that table and sing Zmiras and share Devrei Torah and talk Dvarm Shomabekach, small talk, to build relationships with each other. I'm not just serving my, my uh, appetite. I'm serving Hashem. So when I put my kalim in the mikvah, what I'm doing, it's already a few, only kli sauda, only the kalim that contribute to the meal. What I'm saying is, these are not ordinary kalim. And they're not just there to advance food or taste or appetite. They're there, not just to beat Bobby Flay, they're there in order to serve Hashem, in order to achieve a level of kedusha. It's an entirely radically different way to see what the purpose of what the purpose of of the kalim are. The Shem Shmuel, the Sachat Shavar Rebbe has a final uh, suggestion. How do you, Tefillah's kalim takes place where? In the mikvah. Where do I give it that kedusha, that sanctity? Where do I give it that mission, that charge? By immersing it in the mikvah. What's the significance of immersing it in the mikvah? Says the Shem Shmuel, the Sachat Shavar Rebbe, Asher adam yevshar lo'ach yos b'mayim al-ken kesheba m'mayim u'ki'ilu i'ber eschiyuso u'kashayetim m'mayim k'katan shanola dami What's the significance of a mikvah? A mikvah is comprised of entirely rainwater. We gather our modern mikvahs. You're not immersing in the rainwater. We have a mechanism. You're actually using purified water, but through a connection, through a neshika, through a kiss, it's connected to a, a bore, a pit of rainwater. Our mikvah has a slanted roof. It collects the rainwater, it comes down through a pipe, and it goes through channels, the equipment room, it's all set up. But the image is that when you immerse in the mikvah, you are bare as the day that you were born. There is no barrier, there is nothing, you're not wearing anything. You are as bare as the day you were born. You go into natural water, which is like the embryonic fluid. You take a fetal position to dunk underneath that water. In the water, you can't breathe, you can't live, you've suspended your life. And when you come out and you attain life, you're born anew, you're born again. So whether it's women or men, biblical times or post-biblical times when people were strict about, about uh, Tumma and Tahara and eating Truma and, and Kadshim and so on, a person had to be pure, had to go to the mikvah. Those who still go to the mikvah, men every day or Erev Shabbos or Erev Ayantav, the image is, I'm being born again. 
I'm going down to what I wore when I was born. I'm going into a natural body of water, symbolic of the embryonic fluid. I'm taking the fetal position. My life is suspended. I can't live underwater. I'm entirely immersed. And then I emerge, I breathe, and I start life again. And says the Sachet that's the same thing with a Kli. You know, today we immerse our Kalim, we acquire from a non-Jew. That was brand new. But the Torah was talking about Klei Midyan. You're taking their Klei that was used in their kitchen to cook their pork and their Basar Bachalov and to serve at their vulgar meals. How do you make it new? It goes in the mikvah. The same imagery of into that body of water, the place of rebirth, the place of renewal. That's Tefillah's Kalim. We also have in this Pasuk the laws of Hechshar Kalim or Hagalas Kalim. Kol Dovar Tavira Ba'esh. Anything that absorbed the taste through fire, how do you purge that taste? How do you remove it? Ba'esh, through fire. And anything that acquired its taste not with fire, but with the medium of water, how do you purge the taste? With water. Chazal learned, kebolo kachpolto. However it absorbed taste is how it purges taste. If it absorbed taste through heat, so you roasted something in a pan in your oven or on a barbecue, it absorbed, absorbed through heat, then you kasher. How do you kasher the oven? With libun. You need heat. If it absorbed through liquid, you cooked something in a pot, how do you get it out? Hagala. Put it in boiling water. If it absorbed through steam, the walls of your microwave, how do you remove it? Through steam. However it absorbed is how it is purged. That is the laws of Hechsher Kalim or Hagala's Kalim. Again, a lot of more complicated or details to it. The Chavetz Chaim writes on our Pasuk, the Chavetz Chaim Ala Torah, our Parsha, he says that it's not just about the kalim, the vessels. This is a prescription or formula for how to persevere or win at war, excuse me, with our Yetzirah or our alter ego. Alter ego. Just like the Torah is telling us that you have to kasher something the same way it was used and it absorbed, so too we repair ourselves. We kasher ourselves. It's a mission in Pirkei Avos that says, um, the 48 things that Torah does, Torah machsharto. Torah has the ability machsharto. Rochaim Velazhner is Ruch HaChaim on Pirkei Yavah says, what does the word machsharto mean? Torah machsharto. He says the root of the word machsharto is kasher. How do you kasher something? When you kasher it, you have some non-kosher taste embedded in the wall of a utensil. How do you kasher it? You get it out the same way it came in. Torah has the ability to kasher us. Our minds are filled with all kinds of non-kosher images, ideas, experiences. How do you get them out of our mind? Torah machsharto. You don't stick your head in a pot of boiling water or in a hot oven. How do you get it out? Torah machsharto. It's the study, the engagement of Torah that is the ability to kasher it. So the Chavetz Chaim says, kebolo kachpolto, in this way and in this realm as well. So what do you do? The halacha says, when you want to kasher utensil, you have to peel off the rust. If you have anything caked on or if you have any rust, it has to be removed so that the water can actually hit the pot and kasher it. So, we have to remove the rust, the, the residue. You know, if you're still proud of or you're still enjoying the mistake that you made, then that residue is still stuck to you. Before you can engage in tshuva, before you can kasher yourself, you have to peel it off. You have to have regret on the past and acceptance about the future. And then, If you did the sin with fire, with passion, with energy, you have to bring the same level of energy. You have to bring the heat. 
in order to remove the chait that you had done as well. So the Chavetz Chaim says, we see in here, we see in this parsha of Hechsher Kalim, Regalus Kalim, how we purge or get rid of the contaminant of life experience in our own lives. The same attitude we brought is the same attitude we have to bring back. The Sefer Mayana Shotar has the following on our Pasuk. Pasuk says, we just read it together, page 906. Elazar the Kohen said to the Anshei Atzava, Habaim Lemilchama. I don't understand. It shouldn't say Habaim Lemilchama. What should it say? On the, are they on their way to war or they're on their way back from war? They've just finished the war. They've triumphed. They've collected the spoils. And now we're giving instruction about how to kasher. So what should the Pasuk say? Not Habaim Lemilchama. It should say Habaim Minha Milchama. It's not Lemilchama. It's minha milchama. What's going on in the Pasuk? None of you noticed. But it bothered the Mayana Shatora, and he answers with a story and inside of the Chovas Halavavas. The Chovas Halavavas, Rabbi Bachi says, Maisa b'chased echad. There was a story of a, a pious person who once saw a group of people, they were coming back from war, and they were happy, and they were joyous, and they were waving their weapons, and they were toasting l'chaim, and they were drinking. They won in war, they were victorious, they were triumphant, they were coming home. Amr lahem. Said this chassid echad, said this righteous, pious person to them, Atem nitzachte b'melchama ketana, muetes, ve'ilu ka'es tzfuya lachem melchama gedola pikama, halohi melchames hayetzer. Don't be so satisfied, because you're coming back from a small battle, but you're coming back now to wage a much bigger war, and that is with yourself. See, the battle with the enemy from without, it is a, it's a tough enemy. It's a hard battle. But the war with the enemy within is even more powerful. It's even stronger. It's even more difficult. So therefore he suggests, what's the Pasuk? El Because what it means is Elazar HaKohen is telling them, not you're coming back from war, you're coming back and now, now you have a new war. By the way, the more victorious you are, the bigger the battle you have to fight with yourself because you're going to be arrogant. You're going to be proud. You're going to think that you're all capable and all powerful. So now you're coming back with all the spoils and booty. Now you're coming back with this great pride and arrogance. You're not coming back mina milchama. You're coming back limilchama. You're coming back to fight a fight, to wage a war. And now we understand that the prescription for hachshar kalim, how you kasher the kalim, is also the prescription for how we wage that war with ourselves. Whatever through fire, it needs that same fire, that same passion, that same energy, that same excitement, that same strength in order to fight it. Whatever with liquid, with liquid, and so on and so forth. Okay, there's more to say on this, but I wanted to still get in a few more things in the couple minutes that we still have left. Okay, weiter. Pasuk tells us in this uh, context that a person has to be very, very careful. We have this uh, division of the spoils among all those who fought in the battle. And then we're told to be very, very careful. Where are we? Lamed Beis, Chav Beis. In fact, before we get there. B'nai Gad and B'nai Ruvain had a lot of cattle. And they said, Avar Yarden, east of the Jordan, is the perfect place for our business. Our factory, our company, this is the perfect place. Can make a lot of money here. And so they say, we're not going in. They tell Moshe, look, enjoy, Zai Gesund. We'll send postcards. 
but we're staying here. This is a much better place. And Moshe Rabbeinu turns to them, and he says to them, essentially, are you crazy? Your brothers are going to go to war and you're going to sit here? Moshe says, what are you, crazy? You're going, they're going to go to war and you're going to stay here? I saw in a sefer called Chovos Adam Ba'olamal, he says the following, Moshe Rabbeinu lo mochich osam al asher einam rotsim l'syashev be'ever ayardin. Moshe's criticism is not, hey, where's your Zionism? Where's your longing to return to Zion? Hashem made us a promise to come to the land and you want to stay in Chutz La'aretz? Moshe does not rebuke them with a message about how could you not come to Israel? How does he rebuke them? How could you not care about your brothers? They have to go to war and you're just going to sit tight and under this protection? Let me put this in modern terminology. I can forgive someone who doesn't say the tefillah of Medina. There are different religious viewpoints and there are different uh, ideologies about the significance of the state of Israel. But to not say the tefillah for chayalei tzahal, and you can't even say that tefillah? That's, I think, the message of what Moshe is saying. Is Moshe does not rebuke them for not coming. Of course we should come. And the Pasha's Masai, which we won't get to, we have the mucker of the Pasuk of Yeshiva Sa'aretz, the mitzvah to live in Israel. It's a mitzvah. For all of us, it should not be a question of if but when. We all belong there and we should be going there. And if we don't go there on our own, Kosh looks like he's pushing us all to go there. I believe in all of that. And it's not a question of if, but a question of when. You don't have to lecture me on that. No one has to send me an email about that. However... It's interesting that Moshe does not lecture Ruvain and God about that. How could you settle outside of Israel? How could you stay in Tinek, the five towns in Boca? That's not what Moshe lectures them about. What he lectures them about is how can you stay there and not care about your brothers who are on the front lines, are battling, are doing what they need to do. You really should be there with them. And if you're not, minimally you need to be supporting them. You need to be taking care of them. You need to join them, at least for the battle. It's a very interesting insight that what his criticism specifically is about. He's also implicitly criticizing them about their skewed priorities because they mentioned Mikna Rav. We got a big business. We also have women and children. And Moshe says, your families. And then he mentions the business. He gives this kind of subtle musr. And in this context of the story, and by the way, then Moshe divides Menashe. He puts half of Menashe with them, Reuven and God, half Menashe and Israel. Why does he do that? Why does he do that? So many have suggested the reason he does that is to maintain a sense of achtas. See, Reuven and God might not have anything to do with their fellow um, tribes in Israel. But if you take one tribe and divide it in two, you know they'll stay connected with one another and that will build the bond and create the unity among them all. The Chidush Arim says something. I saw this year, it's the Chidush Arim. I originally heard it at my Shabbos table from my oldest daughter when she was a little girl. She suggested it. That maybe Reuven and God are not so bad. And maybe they didn't have such negative intent only for their business. Maybe they wanted the following. Moshe Rabbeinu was not allowed to go into the land of Israel. But if they would settle east of the Yardane and thereby extend the boundary of Israel east, Moshe will have himself have been in Israel. And it was a gift to Moshe. Maybe it was a noble intent, not a negative intent. Maybe it wasn't self-centered for their business. Maybe what they were saying is if we leave the boundary the way they're originally defined, then indeed Moshe will never make it in. But if we settle here and extend the boundary of what's included in Israel, then Moshe Rabbeinu himself can come in. Anyway, in this context, Perak Lamed Beis, Pasuk Chav Beis, we have a Pasuk. Torah tells us, Moshe says, 
Here's the deal. I'll let you go back and settle. First, you have to come in and fight with us. And you have to be nikiyim. What does it mean? You have to be clean from God and from the Jewish people. This principle, v'isim nikiyim, Chazal learned from this pasuk, v'isim nikiyim, Hashem Yisrael, that we have to always conduct ourselves in a way that we are above and beyond reproach. A person might say, you know, as long as I know I'm doing the right thing, what do I care what anyone says about me? What other people think is none of my business. And there's an element that's healthy in that attitude, but the Torah says not entirely. V'isim nikiyim, Hashem Yisrael means that you have to be careful not to give a misimpression. This is the Torah source for a concept we have called Maris Ayin. Not Maris, Maris, the per- Maris Ayin. You can't behave in a way which gives people the wrong impression. And there are several examples of this. I'll give you just a few. First of all, the Gabbai Tztaka has to be very careful how he collects the money, distributes the money, not to look like there's any personal atiyah in it. And, and the Gemara Psachim learns that. How do you know the Gabbai has to be very careful of that? Simple things. The Gabbai is given change. He shouldn't reach into his pocket to pull out the money to put some back in the gift. May not be doing anything wrong. You have to be above and beyond reproach. It says when Moshe sends them to war, and the Kliyakar explains, Moshe didn't want to go to war himself. Why didn't Moshe go to war himself in Midian? Because he was worried that if he went to war, and he did something that people perceived was not his full effort, they'll say, well, Moshe was protected in Midian. Moshe has an affinity for Midian. He's not doing his all. So Moshe doesn't even engage in the war because he doesn't want to be in a position where people will be suspicious of him. Visim Nikim Hashem Yisrael is to live lives, to engage in behavior that's beyond reproach, not to invite anyone's suspicion of us. We find it elsewhere in the Torah too. Rafan Allah, when Moshe davens for his sister Miriam, Rashi there says, why doesn't Moshe, that's all he can give her? Kelna Rafan Allah. That's not even half a Mishaberach. That's not even a third of a parak of Tehillim. That's all Moshe could muster on behalf of his beloved sister who saved his life. Rafan Allah, that's it? That's what he's got, three words for her? So Rashi there says, Shelo Yisrael Omrem Achoso Omedes Omar So nobody will say his sister's suffering and he's sitting davening endlessly, he should be caring about her. Or that he'll daven a long time, they'll say, oh, for his sister, he says to him all day. But for anyone else who's sick, he doesn't care. Moshe was very conscientious, to be beyond reproach, not to invite the suspicion of other people. We see this with Yaakov Avinu. We see this in many, many places in the Torah. Rabbi Soloveitchik points out this is the origin of the halachas of Maris Ayin. What is the, sim- what is the source of Maris Ayin? Why do we have a halachic consideration of Maris Ayin? Does it only apply to Isurim Daraisa? Is Marasayan only on biblical commandments? Does it also apply to, to uh, rabbinic commandments? The Ramah this case is a case where, what if you're having the Ramah in Shulchan Aruch, in Yerodea, Pezayan is talking about a case where you marinated meat in almond milk. But I'll give the example, you want a cup of coffee after a fleshic meal with almond milk. So, Basar B'chalav is in the Sardaraisa, so the Ramah says, if you have almond milk, this was the halacha for a long time. Today we're not as careful because things have evolved. But it used to be when you had non-dairy creamer, let's say you were at a simcha that was catered, the hashkacha would require that there be a sign that says the milk is non-dairy. Or you have the actual container of the non-dairy milk. And that's based on the Ramah, the Ramah Paskins. If you just ate meat, and now you're going to have a coffee with milk, because it's non-dairy milk, you need to have, in the times of the Shulchan Aruch, you'd put the almonds 
near the almond milk so that you were telling people this is non-dairy creamer. It's not milchik, so I'm not violating basar b'chalav. But the Ramah says, you don't have to do it in the case of oaf. The mixing of, of uh, fowl and milk is only a rabbinic prohibition, not a biblical prohibition. So if you just ate chicken, then you wouldn't have to have the non-dairy sign next to the non-dairy creamer. There's no mara sign consideration on the durabonon, only on the dorai. So the marashal disagrees. And the marashal says that even for oaf, even for fowl, you'd have to put the almonds near the almond milk so you won't give people the wrong impression. Ask Rabbi Salavechik, What's the machlokas between the Ramah and the Maharsha? What are they arguing about? Whether Maharsha only applies to a biblical commandment or to a negative one. And he says perhaps the difference is two rationales for why Maharsha is prohibited. According to the Maharsha, Maharsha is an extension of the prohibition of Lifna Iver. You're worried someone's going to watch you, see what you're doing, and learn from you and do the wrong thing. So therefore, it doesn't make a difference whether it's Dorais or Dorabanan. Don't do the wrong thing in public even if you're doing the right thing. Don't do something that looks like the wrong thing because people aren't going to understand. So therefore, there's no difference. But according to the Ramah, Marasayan has a different source. What's the source of Marasayan? The Yisim Nekiyim Me'ashem Yisrael. It is nothing, I'm not worried about your learning from my behavior. I'm worried about giving you the wrong impression of me. It's not a din in you, it's a din in me. That I have to engage in behavior that's beyond reproach. It can't ever be suspect. The Gemara and Yuma gives two examples of this. The Garmu family who prepared the showbread in the base of would not allow members of the family to bring clean flour into their home. So no one would think that they took flour for personal use from the base of Some of the Aftinas family who prepared the Ketoras in the base of would not allow a bride from their family to wear perfume lest someone suspect that they took the ketoras of the Beis HaMikdash in order to perfume their bride for their wedding. Both are a fulfillment of that this notion that we have to care about our reputation. Not for our children's shiduchim. We have to care about our reputation because our own integrity, our own integrity, it matters. It's important. So you can't go into McDonald's to get a Coke. Ah, you're doing nothing wrong. All you got was a Coke. But someone's going to say, I saw the person with the yarmulke, or I saw that woman who I know is observant at McDonald's. Maybe the French fries are okay there. Maybe it's just potatoes. So that's the marshal. Maybe they'll learn. According to the Ramah, it's visum nekiyim. You shouldn't give anyone the impression that you go to McDonald's. Aye, but all I got was... I'm not talking the bathroom. When it comes to a bathroom, cover a brias. Cover a brias, doche esakol. But I'm not talking about cover a brias, the bathroom. I'm talking about... You're thirsty and a Diet Coke, and you can go to the McDonald's, or you can drive another block and get it in the uh, CVS or the uh, Walgreens. Don't go into the McDonald's. Either the Marshal people will learn from you, or the Ramah, because visum Nikiim, a person has to be even beyond reproach. That is Parshas Matos. We didn't really get to Masay. Should I say one word on Masay, because we have a double Parsha? One word on Masay. It's a beautiful word on Masay. First of all, the whole notion of recounting all of our stops and starting and our journeys we have a Kabbalistic idea that every one of us, every Jew, is destined to go on the same number of journeys as the Jewish people went on. And just as they reflect and stop and celebrate each milestone in their journey, so should we. We wouldn't be who we are without all the stops and starts and all the milestones within our own journey. And a review on that is something which is significant, something which is important. At the end of the parsha, you have the mitzvah of Ir Miklat. If a person kills by accident, they flee and they are protected in a Ir Miklat. We run to a city of refuge. By the way, there were three in Israel and three east of the Yardin. Why did you need the same for two and a half tribes as you needed for nine and a half tribes? That doesn't sound very uh, 
doesn't make a lot of sense. So the Gemara says, you know why? There were more accidental murders that happened in the two and a half tribes, as many as there were in the nine and a half tribes. They needed as many Ari Miklat. Why? Why do you think that they were so prone or predisposed to these accidental murders at that proportion? So the Gemara says, you know why? Their value of money. Because they expressed that their priority is their money over their children. When you prioritize your things over your people, you're going to be lax and you're going to be vulnerable and there are going to be more accidental murders when it comes to those people. How do we have the din of Ir Miklat in our time? Do we have the din of Ir Miklat in our day? So there's a beautiful Aptarov, Rav Avram Yeshua Heschel, the Oiv Yisrael, the Aptarov has a beautiful pshat. He says, where do we run to today when we need refuge? When we feel that we're being chased, we're being pursued, we need refuge, we need divine protection. Where do we run today? We don't have an Ir Miklat. Says the Aptarov, we do. You know what our Ir Miklat is? The Pasuk says, There were six Are Miklat. Says the Aptarov, the Oiv Yisrael, our six Are Miklat are Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad. Six words in the Pasuk of Shema, when we need a place of refuge and protection, when we want to feel Hashem and find Hashem, where do we go for refuge? We immerse ourselves in Shema. Six Are Miklat are the six words of Shema. And these are the 42 words in Parshas Va'ahavta. So where does a Jew turn to today for refuge? When we feel threatened and we feel chased and pursued and we feel vulnerable, we immerse ourselves in Shema, in Kabbalah Salmachu Shemaim, in Amuna and Bitachon. And in Hashem, we find that protection and we find that refuge. Have a fantastic day.